Good morning. The, uh, that last line of the song, I'm yours and you're mine, is just echoing in my, my head, and the fact that that's possible for us to sing that uh, is just so meaningful, our infidelity in Christ's redeeming love and uh, the hope of the gospel. So that's just resonating in my heart. I saw a baby in the back of the room, and that just made me smile. I've got two kids of my own, and so um, grad school with children. Um, Godspeed, my friend back there. <laughs> Twins, wow, that's, I have not traveled that road uh, myself. So uh, somebody asked if I would speak at chapel, and I went to a public university, and so I'm picturing five or ten people in a prayer room, and I didn't actually know what chapel was, so somebody had to explain it. And, uh, and then I was much more excited when, when to hear about this, and um, so very honored to be with you all. I heard a story about a guy who had the opportunity to talk with God, and he was asking him questions, and he said, God, what is a billion years like for you? And God said, a billion years is like one second. And he said, okay, God, what is a billion dollars like for you? And God said, a billion dollars, that's like one penny. And so the guy's thinking about it and says, God, can I have a penny? And God said, sure, give me one second. <laughs> and that, that notion there that God's ways are higher than our ways and that he's one step ahead of us has played out in my life in a dramatic way in the last couple of years. And I've felt at times like I've been watching my own life like a movie script just play out in front of me. And so it's been an amazing journey, one that demonstrates his sovereignty and faithfulness, and uh, I've, I've been so grateful for it. But I arrived at Harvard Business School in the fall of 2013 as an incoming MBA student, and I was in hot pursuit of the American dream, just like all of my classmates. I'd been making over $100,000 per year before my MBA in my early 20s, working for Chevron, and I hoped to double or triple my income on the other side of my degree. So I'd actually applied for an executive training program that would send me overseas to four different countries in the two years after finishing my MBA. And they take about 1,000 resumes for this program every year, and they gave out three full-time job offers. And I was one of those job offer recipients while pursuing my MBA. So everything in my life seemed to be coming together. And kind of the pay range in this expat world is three to $400,000 per year. And the plan was to, to go and do that. And I was very excited about it. And that's when God began to change the narrative for me, and so I'd love to share that story. So I was nervous about going up to Boston, being a Texas boy, and not knowing what the Christian culture would be like up there. So I sought out a men's Bible study on campus, and many people are surprised to hear there's a Bible study at Harvard, um, but there was, a small one, small but mighty. And uh, so this men's Bible study was a tremendous blessing in my journey, and there's a group of seven guys, and we actually ended up forming not just a study together, but committing to something longer term, which we now call our Board of Directors for Life. And so we committed to one another, not just in these two years, but actually over the next many decades that we'll live on, on the earth, let's be there for one another at a strategic level to give counsel and to encourage one another to be faithful husbands and fathers and, and business people and stewarding all that God has given us to live and finish well. So that group's been amazing. We've, we have a monthly phone call. We've had an annual get-together a couple of times now where we really just dive in and encourage one another. But in our very first conversations, one of the things we talked about was money. So we're all at this great graduate program. We're very thankful for the opportunity. And statistically, it's pretty likely that some or all of us will get fairly wealthy. And so how do we handle that? What do we do with that? And we didn't really know. And my friend Greg, in the middle of these conversations, found out about a class over at Harvard Divinity School. We were at the business school. And the class is called God and Money. And so we're reading the course description. And we're going, well, we love both things. So we should probably take the class. And so we signed up for it. And we cross-registered over into the Divinity School. And we had an amazing experience in this class, uh, looking at everything the Bible has to say about money, and also everything in the Christian theological tradition over the last 2,000 years. 
And it was amazing for me growing up in a Christian home and the same for my, my friend Greg. We'd never been exposed to a lot of this before. And what it shocked me is that it began to re reveal in my heart that I've always been a saver and that my highest values around money were about saving. So I can remember being a kid and actually having a coffee can full of coins and that was my money. And I would dump it out and count up all the coins and write my net worth down on a post-it note, you know, $8.53. And I would track it over time. I then went on in high school and mowed hundreds of lawns and finished high school with $10,000 in the bank that I'd saved up mowing lawns. And then I finished my engineering undergrad and graduate studies with $100,000 in the bank through internships, scholarships, investments. And so it was, I was on this wealth building track and I was very excited about it. Actually, when my wife and I were living in Louisiana, I was working for Chevron making six figures early on in life and we had a 50% savings rate. And if she were here, that, that's, she would say that's because you didn't let me buy anything. And, uh, <laughs> which is true, I was a, a huge tightwad in that phase of life. But she's also very frugal and we shared this vision that we would be a millionaire by age 30 and actually my online banking password was retire at symbol 40. So I was reminding myself when I logged in to check my balances, this is where I'm headed. I'm gonna be 40 years old, millions of dollars, and I can check out of the system, hang out on the beach, do whatever I wanna do. And as we engaged with scripture, um, you know, I thought I was the picture of financial maturity. I did tithe, I gave 10%. That was kind of a hindrance to my savings, so it annoyed me a little bit. Uh, but I, I did that, and I thought I was a absolutely faithful right on the bullseye as a Christian when it came to money uh, because of what I'd, I'd been taught or what I'd picked up. And, and then some of these scriptures began to challenge me on that. So the parable of the rich fool, Luke chapter 12, that's the one that really gripped my heart for the first time. And it's the story about the guy who has barns and then he wants to build bigger barns because he has a great harvest. Sounds kind of like a smart entrepreneur uh, in our context. But as Greg and I were talking about this parable, we weren't resonating with the language because it's agricultural. So, you know, what is a barn really about and how does that work? We grew up in the city, I don't know. So um, we tried to take this parable and paraphrase it into the 21st century in terms of financial language. And so if you think the message is a paraphrase, this is like 10 steps further than that. So um, with, uh, and I don't know Greek at all. So I'm, I'd like to read it to you because this is actually what gripped my heart in a serious way for the first time, but please give me some grace on uh, the lack of being a Bible scholar here. But. 21st century parable of the rich fool. And Jesus told them a parable saying, the stock options belonging to a manager vested after a major run-up in share price. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I already have enough saved to send my kids to college. My house is paid off and I already max out my 401k every year. And he said, I will do this. I'll open an investment account and create a passive income portfolio. I'll exercise my options and put the money there. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have a big enough portfolio to be financially independent. Retire early, plan some vacations, play golf. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the portfolio you've built, what use will it be then? So is the one who endlessly builds his net worth and is not rich toward God. And that was an arrow through my heart because I realized I thought I was the picture of financial maturity. And then here Jesus is saying that I'm a fool. Not because it's wrong to save money, but it's wrong to make that an idol, and it's wrong to get your identity out of that and to have a lack of generosity toward God in the midst of it. So I'm having this life-changing experience, and I'm talking to Greg, and he goes, oh, that's interesting uh, that saving's a thing for you. And he goes, I I'm realizing that I'm actually a spender, not a saver. And he tells me his story, and, and as it turns out, he made my earnings look like small potatoes um, before business school. He was 25 years old, making over a quarter of a million dollars per year in the financial industry. And so he was 
very high income. He was tithing 10%, and as he would say, I thought if I gave 10%, I could get in God's good graces so I could spend the 90% however I wanted. So he and his wife lived in the fanciest apartment they could find in Boston. They were spending $1,000 a month dining out. They were taking five-star vacations overseas. And again, everyone in their life, Christian or not, would say, wow, you guys are doing amazing, faithful givers, and, and you're, you look like everything is perfect in your life. And Greg reflected on Matthew 13, parable of the sower. And there's the four soils. We know about these, and we all want to be the fourth soil, the fruitful disciple that yields 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. And Greg was talking about the third type of soil is pretty concerning. And what the scripture says there is that as for the seed that was sown among thorns, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it bore no fruit. And so he's reflecting on his journey. He's reflecting on his heart as a spender and saying, you know what, I think even though I'm enjoying my life, I'm not bearing much fruit for God's kingdom because I'm distracted by the pursuit of things. And so we realized we had a problem. Our theology of money was totally off base, and we wanted to try and solve this problem. So what we did was we, we started with an idea, which was if you have money in your hand, $100 bill here, there's only three things you can do with money. You can spend it on today, you can save it for tomorrow, or you can serve others with it. And we thought maybe each of those three things could represent a mindset of money. So we've got the spending thing figured out. And for Greg, he would say, every marginal dollar in my life is an opportunity to go buy something, to go have an experience, to, to spend it in some way. And I have the saver thing figured out. And for me, every marginal dollar in my life is an opportunity to sock it away and to store up wealth because I get validation out of that. But we go, both of those are wrong because the spender... Greg would say, I'm a materialist. I'm caught up in the pursuit of things. And I tend to believe in my heart of hearts, if I'm honest about it, that the next thing I can get or experience I can pursue will give me satisfaction when I know that that's only in Christ, my Savior. And I would say as a saver, I came to realize that I got a sense of identity out of my financial net worth. I believed that I was significant, that I meant something in the world because here I am as a young guy and I'm building wealth. And that makes me more significant than others. That gives me identity. That gives me self-worth. And God was tearing that down for me and saying, I am your identity. I am your security, not money. So those are problematic. So what if there's a third mindset, which is the servant mindset? And what if you could have this idea that says, any money that comes into my life is an opportunity to sow into God's kingdom. Not that I won't spend or save because I have to live on this earth. And, and, and God celebrates in, in our provision. But that's not my highest ambition. My highest ambition is to invest in the kingdom. We said, we don't know anybody like that, so maybe we should go find them. And that was the genesis of our research project. But very quickly, on the first day of God and Money class, the professor actually said, could you all take out a piece of money, take out a paper dollar bill? And I looked in my wallet, and being a good Harvard MBA student, all I had was $100 bills. So I took one out and held it just like this, and I looked on my left, and Greg was thumbing through his money clip, and all he had were hundreds. And so he pulled one out, and then we're kind of laughing about our $100 bills, and then we remember, here we are in a seminary classroom, so we look around and it's an ocean of ones, as far as the eye can see. <laughs> and then people started noticing us, and so that's how we made a terrible first impression <laughs> on the first day as the business guys. So uh, we set out on this project and we said, what if we can go find servants? And we, we wanted to write our term paper together. It's supposed to be a 15-page paper, which we thought was intimidating. And so we, we asked if we could combine, and the prof said, sure, just make it 30. Darn. <laughs> So we're supposed to write a 30-page paper, and we said, let's go out and find servants. Let's look at what Scripture says, but more importantly, let's go find some stories. So we sent out a survey monkey 
to a bunch of business leaders, mostly Harvard MBAs, and we got over 200 responses. And we asked all kinds of questions like, what's your income, what's your net worth, how much money do you give away, how do you think about giving, do you have any stories you wanna share? And as you can imagine, we found lots of savers and spenders, but we did find these anomalies that were incredible to us. People who would say, you know, I, I started giving a long time ago, and now I give more than my current income away every year, but my net worth just keeps growing because God's blessing my business, but I'm giving as much away as I can. I just can't keep up with God. And we go, wow, that's different. Let's, let's talk to these people. And so we did follow-up phone calls, and what ended up happening was that 30-page paper, which was intimidating to start with, we had so much fun writing these stories and collecting this data, we ended up with an 80-page paper, which we turned in with an apology note. And, uh, and then we got an A-, minus, I think, probably because it was too long, uh, too much to read. But that 80-page paper took on a life of its own, and uh, apparently uh, Dr. Lewis saw it, and so it's getting all over the place, and, and God kept opening doors, and so that ended up morphing into the book God and Money over the ensuing year. But uh, what we found in these servants was that they were asking a different question. Greg and I would say, we all have always asked, how much do I need to give? And that's how it's even been framed for us at church. We, we hear about tithing and we go, okay, that sounds like a rule that I can follow and I can check the box if I give 10%. And then you have the discussion pre-tax or post-tax. And you get into this huge debate of which, which it is and, uh, and, and then you settle on an answer and you say, okay, I'll do that. Check the box, I've got the generosity thing down, now I can go do whatever I want with the rest. And these people, rather than asking how much do I need to give, we're asking, how much do I need to keep? So they had flipped the question on its head, and their mindset seemed to be, just like in the scripture we just read, First Chronicles, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer thus willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. So the servant mindset says, God, this is all yours. I can't believe I'm blessed with financial resources. I may spend and I may save, but I want to invest in your kingdom, and if you give me more and abundantly more, that's so I can give. So a couple of examples, one was a family, very much the age of most of the people in this room, young family, a couple of children, and they had a small house in Southern California, very successful financially, and they wanted to buy a larger house that would be their, their house they could raise their family in, and they'd saved up some money to do that. And they're telling us this story, and they said, yeah, you know, God started convicting our hearts and, in, and inspiring us to do something bold that we'd never done before, but we, we didn't want to do it, and we were wrestling with God, but eventually we relented. So we took that $100,000 and then we just wrote all of it away in a check to our church, gave hundred grand to our church. And as the saver, of course, I'm like, what about your college fund for your kids? What about anything else? And they said, we stayed in the house we were in and we gave, and this is our adventure with the Holy Spirit and we wouldn't have it any other way. And it's been amazing to see what that money has done. So when our, we're, our minds are still reeling from that, and then we meet this hedge fund manager in Texas who actually makes millions of dollars per year. And he said, guys, I'm not that into saving money. We go, well, can you explain that to us? And he said, sure, there's two reasons. One, scripture is abundantly clear as I read through it. He'd become a believer as an adult, so he was unbiased by any cultural filters, and, and he just read the Bible. And he said, what does the Bible say about money? And he goes, wow, wealth is dangerous. I've got to be very careful about greed, about the accumulation of wealth, and I know my own heart, so I don't even want to go there. He said, so I don't, wanna, I don't want to become wealthy. He said, the second thing is, and more importantly, though, giving money away is the most fun I've ever had. And there's nothing I've found that draws me closer to Jesus than pressing in on stewardship and pressing in on generosity. So here's the deal. I, I'm saving for retirement. I'm not going to be totally irresponsible. So, you know, I've got this glide path, but I'm not in a rush. I want to have $3 million when I'm really old. And so I'm saving every year to eventually get there. And uh, that's not poverty. That's actually doing really well, but I'm not in a hurry. 
and I've got my house paid off and my family's taken care of, we live a nice lifestyle, but after that we give everything away, millions of dollars every single year, and we have so much fun doing it. So that, that was amazing to us, and as the saver, again, I'm like, couldn't you just save for three months and kind of set it over here to the side and be okay? And he goes, that's not the way I want to do it. You're not getting it. And um, so it was a challenge and an amazing opportunity for me and Greg, and the thing was, people living this way were not operating out of guilt, not operating out of obligation. They were operating out of a response to the grace of God. And they had freedom, they had a sense of purpose, they had a joy that was contagious. So we said, we want, we want in on that. How do we do that? And so Greg and his wife Allison, me and my wife Megan, we each prayerfully considered how we could set a finish line financially that we would walk forward into our careers with after graduation. And through a process that we talk about in the book, we ended up settling on a number and said, we won't spend more than $100,000 per year to raise our families, no matter what happens in the future. You know, maybe we can't spend that much if we don't have that much money, but if we have a high income, that will be our limit. That's a really nice lifestyle, and there's nothing magical about the number, but we wanted to have a guardrail put in place so that if our income goes to a million, that's so we can invest in God's kingdom and we'll keep our lifestyle right at the 100. So we made that commitment, and you know, it's relatively easier to make commitments like that in grad school while accumulating student loans. And it's harder to walk them out in real life, in the real world. And so it was amazing to see in the next year what God did to give us opportunities to step out in faith and say, are you really going to walk this out? So to share a little bit of Greg's story first, he graduated, went to work for a healthcare technology company in Nashville, Tennessee, and he had a slice of the equity in this firm. And six weeks into his job, they got bought out by this mega corporation for $400 million. And so I give him a call and I say, what, what does this look like for you? And he said, I'm going to take home $470,000. And uh, he's six weeks into his job again. And I'm like, man, you're the highest paid MBA grad in history. Like in the first year after your, your job, this is amazing. And my first reaction for him, to be totally honest, was pity. So I was like, you just made a public commitment on paper that you'd live on 100 and here comes half a million dollars. So how are you feeling about that? And what he said was, I, I'm telling you the truth here. I feel more free than I've ever felt in my life. The thing is, when we made that decision ahead of time to live modestly, relatively modestly, um, we knew what kind of house we would buy. That was a predetermined decision. We knew what kind of cars we would drive. He drives a 2002 Mercury Grand Marquis that he got from his grandma. It's great. And, uh, and so he said, those decisions are made already, so we can take this resource. We're not going to give all of it away because, man, we're seriously in debt with student loans. We're trying to buy a house but we just allocate. Okay, we're going to pay off some loans. We're going to invest in the down payment. God's given us provision. Praise God for that. But we're going to give at least 20% of the gross amount away, and we hope to grow in generosity even well beyond that going forward. So that was incredible to see him live that out. And so Megan and I are thinking, great, this sounds fun. We're going to do the same thing. Here we are headed to Nigeria. We'll make 400 grand. We'll probably give half that income away. It's going to be very fun. But as, as you guys, I'm sure, have experienced in your journeys, God has a different and unique call in each of our journeys. And so about two months prior to graduation, we intersected with a ministry called Generous Giving. And this ministry is incredible. Um, Dan Lewis is a, a volunteer for the ministry, helps share the message. But what we do is, is have retreats all over the country, spreading the biblical message of generosity, people in focused conversations. We're privately funded by some very generous foundations. And so we don't actually have to ask for money in the context of the ministry, but rather just get to Say, this is something God has for you, not something he wants from you. And we see amazing transformation as people see stories of generosity. So we encountered the ministry of generous giving, and, and they made the offer to Greg and I, hey, would you guys come consider working for us? 
we're trying to grow. We, we've got a spot on our leadership team we're trying to hire for. And, and just, we know you guys each have your plans in healthcare and in oil and gas, but would you just pray about it? And, and God began to seriously stir my heart. And I had a pride issue about ministry, to be honest, as a business person where, you know, for many people, ministries up here, businesses down here, I was the opposite. I was like this. And I was like, I want to be in the business world. I want to be earning money. Again, it's that identity thing. I want to be a wealth creator. And God was challenging me to say, no, I need you in ministry. All of us are in ministry, but I need you specifically in vocational ministry. And I'm calling you to do it. And Megan and I remember so distinctly the nights in our tiny apostle tiny apartment in Boston, putting our kids to bed, we would lay down on our bed and we would cry our eyes out. We would just say, God, are you really asking us after five years of working for this goal to let it go? And his answer to us over and over was, yes, I need you to release this and I need you to change your plans. And in that season of life, our go-to song, Megan's go-to song, was Oceans. And so we got to hear that this morning, but that played in our apartment, echoed through the apartment 500 times or more. Um, without exaggeration, it just played on repeat day after day after day as we were wrestling with this decision and we eventually relented and said, okay, we're gonna do this. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna make the jump and what happened was in our personal financial situation, the job was in Orlando, Florida, a lot cheaper real estate than Boston and we moved down and we went house hunting on this crazy weekend of house hunting and we found a place with four bedrooms that we could raise our family in. It was within our guardrails financially but more importantly was within my nonprofit ministry salary which was not quite the same as Chevron but we could afford this house. And it was awesome to see God's provision, but the down payment for the house had, was gonna take us down to about our last $8,000 in liquid funds that we had available. And we only had one car, and it was a sedan, so we were driving around Boston sometimes to the airport, kids in their car seats, suitcases in the trunk, and then suitcases in our lap, because there wasn't room for our things, and so we wanted a larger car. And those of you, shout out to the families in the back that I've seen, we were in the minivan phase. The most desirable car on the road to us was a minivan. And uh, in that phase, you come to learn that the Honda Odyssey is the queen of minivans. And so we wanted a Honda Odyssey, but we didn't wanna go in debt for one. And with eight grand, we're sitting there going, okay, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna get a car? And what ended up happening is that two weeks into my job, a coworker at Generous Giving says, guys, can you all pray for me? And we go, sure, what's going on, David? How can we pray for you? And he says, well, there's this weird situation, actually. I've got this old Honda Odyssey with 160,000 miles on it, and we're sending a kid off to college. We're kind of past that season of life. We don't need the van anymore. But the weird part is, and this is where, you, I don't know, it's gonna sound funny, but the Holy Spirit won't let me get rid of the van. So for four months, I've been sitting on my hands and wanting to list the car, but God won't let me. So I'm just waiting to see what, what that's all about. So pray for me. And, and I was like, well, I'm not gonna pray for you, but I'll buy your minivan. Um, <laughs> and so the blue book value is $6,000. And so it took us down to our last couple thousand to make that purchase. And it was like God had provided for us just what we needed, just where we were as we had followed him. And so it was incredible to see God's faithfulness there. But Megan told me the sweetest moment was the next morning. She put the kids in their car seats and went to drive the car for the very first time, started it up and pressed power on the radio. And guess which song was playing? It was Oceans. And so it was like God was speaking to her and saying, ah, you're my daughter. And when you step out in faith, I will take care of you when you step out of the boat. So that's our journey. And it's been incredible to see what God has done. I would say that um, I know many of you are, are so far ahead of me in your spiritual maturity and journey, but we've gotten to experience what that's like to make a radical life transition and, and follow God in that way and then see that even on the other side, it's not always puppies and rainbows and, and there are more tears shed along the journey 
but the fellowship with Christ we wouldn't trade with anything and the opportunity to go hand in hand with him on, on an adventure and the path that he has for us is, uh, is incredible and an investment in eternity. So I'd like to close with one thought for all of, all of you all as, as the spiritual leaders uh, of the church going forward. I would like to just implore you, actually, to consider this topic as important. Uh, you know, Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. He could have said you can't serve God and your sensual passions, or you can't serve God and Satan. Uh, but he said you can't serve God and money. And, and I think, I really believe, uh, based on my own journey, that this is the primary competitor that so many people face to their affections for Christ. And I can tell you that growing up in the church, in a solid family, in a solid church, under solid preaching, I never heard this addressed from the pulpit. And my pastor would actually brag and say, you don't have to worry. I won't talk about money here. I never preach on money. And it was a badge of honor. Great pastor, but totally missed this and never coached the congregation in this topic of, of such critical importance. I was sharing at Wharton Business School uh, where they're an incredible business school, incredible leaders, and somebody stood up and said, I guess I have a question, maybe more of a comment. He said, I'm 27 years old, I'm about to go make a ton of money, and I would have wrecked my life the way I would have lived. He goes, how is all of this stuff, this biblical generosity stuff, not mandatory for all Christians to learn? I grew up in the church my whole life, and I've never heard this, and I'm on the cusp of going to ruin my life, living financially for myself, and, uh, and here I am, and God has intervened, and I've heard it now, but that would be my encouragement to you. I spent yesterday uh, across the street at the university and I asked two different classrooms uh, after sharing a message like this, if you sat under solid teaching on generosity growing up in the church, if you could raise your hand to acknowledge that, uh, that teaching that you received and then I'd love to connect with you after class because I'm always trying to hear who's doing this well. 70 or 80 students, I got one person to say, yeah, I was taught in a solid way on this topic growing up. So. You have an incredible opportunity. The bar is, is fairly low, I would say, and you can jump right over it, but by addressing the topic of money, how critical it is to our faith journey, how it's so important to us um, for your own journey, for those in your congregation, there will be many Johns and many Gregs and many Megans, my wife, many Allisons, Greg's wife, people who are on this journey and, and need, need you uh, to stand up and step into the gap for them. So I'd love to close in prayer. Uh, Father, I am so grateful for your great generosity, for you so loved the world that you gave your only son for us. And as we've received grace, as we've received the infinite blessing of eternal life from you, I pray that we would step out and reflect that grace to the world, that our inward reality would become our outward reflection of, of your goodness. I pray for every leader in this room and the incredible callings and paths that you have in front of them. And I ask that they could carry a message of biblical generosity forward and, and, and lead many, many people into the freedom that comes from trusting you in this area of our lives. Thank you, Father, for all of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.